kids, you are dismissed. And let's take our Bibles and turn to a very, very familiar passage in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Probably a passage that you know very well. Verse 28 is what I call a plaque verse. It's one of those verses that we know well and that you might post in your home or in your office or on your fridge um, because it's reassuring and it's comforting and it's helpful uh, and it's a source of strength. But if you've ever taken our Bible study methods class or maybe you went through the Revelation study, you know that anytime we see a plaque verse, anytime there's a verse that we know well, we want to make sure we look at the context around it because context is key. And context gives us a better understanding of exactly what the Lord's saying to us because sometimes if we pull a verse out of context, we don't quite get what's, what's going on and why it's there and what's around it. So this is very important that we understand this verse in terms of the application within the text. Romans 8.28 is kind of a, a, uh, a mysterious verse. It's very powerful and it's very reassuring um, and, it, and it gives us great confidence that God is faithful and God is sovereign and that God... Uh, we'll do what is best in our lives when we trust him and we live for him. So it's a source of great strength. That's why we put it on a plaque. And yet, at the same time, it's a little bit mysterious because in our humanity, we sometimes struggle to know what it means that all things work together for good. What exactly does that imply? What is God saying in that? Now, cognitively, cognitively and by faith, Uh, We know that God is righteous, we know that God is holy, we know that God is gracious, and that he loves us to an immense degree that we'll never understand, but he proved it by sending Jesus to redeem us. So, So from a faith standpoint and from an intelligence standpoint, we know that this verse is true, and we tell ourselves that it's true, and we draw from our experiences to affirm that it's true. We look back on times in our lives and say, I know that God has proven this time and time again. And yet emotionally, and this can be very much a part of temptation in our lives, there are times when we just kind of wrestle to believe it. And times where where we want to find comfort and strength in the Lord, but we're hurting or our lives are on upheaval. And we're trying so hard to rationalize exactly how this is for our good. Now, I hope this morning that each of us will understand this concept to a greater extent, and then in doing so, that this text will really, really encourage us. Because one of the great benefits of Scripture is that it is there to strengthen our faith, and it's there to to make us more determined in our resolve to walk with the Lord. And it does that by reminding us how much the Lord has helped us. Because so much of His assistance and so much of His strength in our lives and so much of his upholding is invisible to us we don't always see what the lord's doing and and it's easy to kind of get caught up in our problems and and the things that are going on in our lives and the stresses and struggles and the emotions that are going on and and sometimes we don't quite see what he's doing in our midst so i really hope this text will be a source of great encouragement to you and great strength and if you're struggling this morning and trying to discern what the Lord's doing in your life, or you're, you're really disheartened by someone or something, I, I hope this will give you a spiritual boost. And as a believer, for every believer, I hope it gives us a fresh 
insight into what the Spirit of God is actively doing in our lives and fill us with just such great appreciation for what he does. All right, let's read three verses this morning, starting in chapter 8 and in verse 26. I'll give you a little context in a minute. Paul writes, in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now here's the verse we know well. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Now this is probably with Hebrews, the most theologically deep book of Scripture. And Romans, you could spend literally decades and not really get the fullest depth of what this book is about. But especially from chapter 5 to the end of this chapter, chapter 8, Paul lays out an incredible and convincing apologetic about salvation through faith in Christ. And he talks about, in chapter 5, how we're justified or declared righteous because of the redeeming work of Christ. And then he talks about how we move from death to life, how we move from old man to new man, how we are delivered from spiritual bondage. You see this at the start of chapter 8, how we're delivered from spiritual bondage and and we are uh, released from the penalty of sin and death forever because of the victory of Christ. And then he talks about how we're inheritors and we partake of the of the blessing of God as his children. There is probably no section of scripture that is more profound and more convincing than this one. If you ever struggle to know, is this real? I mean, what I believe and what I've trusted in, is this, is this really authentic? Has Jesus really accomplished what he said he did? If you ever are struggling that way, even as a longtime believer, you just need to study chapter 5 to 8 of the book of Romans because it will convince you. It will assure you and persuade you that this is true. Now, if you go back to verse 18, let's give a little context to it. Starting in verse 18, Paul uses the the context of this eternal triumph that he's talked about in chapters 5 through 8 to to kind of give us a pep talk. He, He talks us through suffering and he talks us through difficulty and he says that in comparison to what we're going to gain, in comparison to what God will eventually give us, we're already experiencing it now, but but the fullest extent of God's grace and the fullest extent of God's blessing that we'll experience when we get to heaven, that in comparison to that, the difficulties and the sufferings and the trials and the problems that we face in this life are minuscule. Now, sometimes that's hard to believe because we're going through a great crisis or a trial and and great sadness, and we're saying, I don't know how it could get worse than that. And yet Paul says, gain some perspective by looking at the comparison of what God is going to give to us. And the foundation for that thought, look at verse 23, is faith. Now, faith is not based on what we can see and hold. Sometimes we trust in what we see and hold. I trust that if I lean on this pulpit, that it will hold me up because it's a heavy piece of furniture. And I trust that this 
platform will hold me up, that it's not going to just collapse under my weight. And I trust that these lights are. So sometimes we trust in things we can see. But the essence of spiritual faith is based on the things that we can't see. In other words, we rely on, we trust in, we have confident hope and assurance in what we cannot see. So as we trust in the Lord and as the Holy Spirit empowers us, Paul says in verse 23 that if we really want to show that we trust the Lord, we will eagerly wait with perseverance for what he is going to do. Now he has accomplished many things in our life. He has redeemed us out of sin. He's brought us out of darkness. He's removed our sins as far as east is from west. He has no memory of my sin anymore. He has no memory of your sin if you're a believer. He looks at us and sees a clean slate based on the blood of Christ. So God has already accomplished many things in our lives that we need to be eternally grateful for. But he says, I have more. I'm going to complete that. The work will be finished when you get to heaven. And in the anticipation of that, that in awareness of all that I have done and all that I've promised, now, verse 23, I want you to eagerly await the adoption that will be finalized, and I want you to eagerly await it with perseverance. Now, verses 18 to 25 are primarily about the spiritual affliction that we endure as a result of being purchased with Christ. Because the enemy hates what's happened. Let's never forget that the enemy absolutely despises the fact that we're saved. He will never get over it. In fact, he will fight it until the day that God throws him in the lake of fire, which already has been prophesied and already been seen by John. So it will happen, but until the day he is tossed in the lake of fire forever, he will fight and hate the fact that you and I are saved. And to, to exacerbate that and to frustrate us and to try to diminish our walk, he will fight us with our flesh. Now, if you look at the verses, verses 18 to 25, just kind of scan it as I talk. Paul talks anthropomorphically. In other words, he talks like it's an actual human being. And he says, our flesh, which is our sin, our old nature that Christ has defeated, that no longer has power over us, and yet still lingers like a bad fungus, that, that our old self, our old man, our flesh, still fights us. You know that's true, right? That our flesh still fights. We know we're supposed to live righteously. We know that the Bible tells us how to live. We know that the Spirit convicts us, and the Spirit challenges us, and the Spirit encourages us. But Paul says in chapter 7, I'm still fighting this battle. I know the good that I should do, and I don't do it, and I know the things that I shouldn't do, and I do those, and I'm wretched. So you and I, as believers, still fight this battle against sin and still fights against us. Now, the Spirit says the way we attack that and the way we overcome it is to reject and deny and put aside everything that is associated with sin, everything that appeals to our flesh. Because look at verse 7. It says that the things of the flesh are hostile toward God. In other words, when we allow sin to control us, when we allow sin to be part of our lives, 
we are setting ourselves in a hostile position against God. We are setting ourselves in opposition to him just by allowing sin to creep in. So he says, how do we overcome that? We need to only desire and only practice and only pursue what is holy and pleasing to the Lord because that's what brings life. Now, what the Spirit's establishing here through Paul is this great struggle. The struggle between sin and righteousness. The struggle between old and new. And Paul says that's not to discourage us or to dissuade us. It is to make us more deliberate and make us more aware and make us more determined in how we're to live. And when we feel weak or we feel dispirited or sad by life, this passage, these three verses that we're looking at this morning, remind us just how significant the Spirit's help is. And it reminds us the resources that God makes available to us. They're, they're more like privileges. It's not just the Spirit says, here are some things that you can use in case you need them. He says, here are the privileges, here are the benefits, here are the honors that you have as a child of God. You would not have these without the Lord. You would be fighting this struggle and this battle on your own. And yet he says, here's the way I'm going to help you, okay? So privilege number one. Take some notes this morning. Let's interact with the text a little bit. The first privilege that we're given, very basic from the text, is the Spirit says that he will help us when we're weak. The Spirit says, I will help you when you're weak. Now, notice that there is an assumption that we will be weak. In fact, the text almost implies that weakness will be the norm rather than the anomaly. Now, that doesn't mean that we're supposed to stay in a constant state of distress and discouragement. Because if we stay in a constant state of stress and discouragement, that indicates that we're not using the wisdom and the strength that the Spirit gives to us or that we're not walking by the Spirit. Instead, we're focusing on ourselves and we're kind of giving up instead of living in the power of the Lord. That's not what the word weakness means here. It doesn't mean capitulation. It doesn't mean, well, life is hard, so I'm just going to kind of let down and emotionally I'm going to be in bondage and I just have no power and I don't know what to do. This is not talking about emotional weakness. This is talking about a lack of spiritual strength, particularly according to the text in three areas. One is trials, one is physical difficulties, and one is a lack of understanding of what's going on. Anybody experience any of those this week? A trial, a physical difficulty, or a lack of understanding what is going on? When we have those weaknesses, when we are spiritually not as strong as we should be, look at the text now, verse 26. Its spirit says, I will help you. Now, the word there is wonderful in the Greek. It's about 25 letters long, so I'm not even going to try to pronounce it. But the word there in the Greek is so wonderful. It means to take hold of, to strive with us, and literally to heave with us. Now, what does that mean? When you are spiritually weak, when you're not as strong as you should be, I will help you. I will take hold of the problem. I will strive with you, and I will heave with you. In other words, here's the mercy of the Lord in our lives. 
as we stand and we try to fight and we stand strong and we're doing all we can with our strength, the Holy Spirit not only comes to our side as the paraclete, but he also grabs the burden and he lifts it up and he lifts it off of us with the fullest extent of his strength as we're going, he comes along and he lifts it up and he heaves it up and he says, here, I have it. I remember when I was about five years old, we were living in Pennsylvania and we had uh, an electric garage door. And one day uh, the, the release uh, the, the catch on it released and it fell on my brother and my brother was laying under the garage door and it was not something where when the release stopped you could manually lift it. All the weight of the tension of the electronics was against it. And my mother came along and she saw him laying under the garage door and with superhuman strength, and you know this happens sometimes, she lifted up the garage door. To this day, she came back a couple days later trying to lift it, couldn't budge it. But you know when a parent, when you see your child in distress, all of a sudden something click, right? You become the Hulk. It's like, I'm going to, this, this thing, this garage door, no, nah, lift up my finger. That's my child. Exponentially times a billion. The Holy Spirit says, when you got the garage door of life on you, here I come, and I'm going to heave that thing up off of you. When you're weak, I'm strong. When you're weak, I'll come and help you. I'll take hold of it, and I'll strive with you. You're actually not doing much, but you can convince yourself that you are. But I'm doing all the work. And I'm going to take it, and I'm going to lift it off of you. Now, the second phrase in the verse names a particular time when he does this. Look back at it. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Now, there are two facts about this verse, or about this section of the verse. The first fact is, there's an assumption that when we have burdens, listen now, that we will be praying. There is an assumption by the Spirit that when we have crisis, that we will be praying. Not sitting around wallowing in self-pity, not feeling despair, not saying it can't be better. In fact, there's an unmistakable connection between our weakness and being in prayer. Listen, the Lord can help you with anything this morning. He promises to supply all of our needs according to his riches and glory. In other words, out of the abundance of his magnificence as Lord of all, out of everything that he has, out of the fullest capacity of the fact that he is God and Lord, He says, I can provide exactly what you need. And I delight to help you when you trust me and call out to me. So what's your greatest need this morning? Health? Family issues? Finances? Relationships? Friendships? Some crisis in your life? What is it? He can and will provide When you ask for him. So the question is, are you asking? And if you are asking, are you submitting it to him? Because here's the second problem. Look back at the verse. It says, we don't know how to pray. Now, there's no latitude or debate in that. He's not saying, well, some of you don't don't really get it. The Spirit is saying, this is an undeniable truth. 
part of the spiritual weakness that we have is that we don't know how to pray as we should. Now, what does that mean? Many of us feel insecure enough about praying. So this is only making it worse, right? But notice that the Spirit of God isn't saying, those of you who are really mature and pray with great depth and are willing to pray out loud, you guys are okay, but the rest of you don't know what you're doing. He is lumping all of us together, and he says, none of you, and Paul even includes himself, none of us knows how to pray as we should. So the question is, why? What are we getting wrong? What, what does the Spirit want us to do to correct it? Well, look at the text. He says one issue is that we don't know the right things to ask. We are not capable judges of what we need. Why? Because we tend to be temporal. And we tend to be materialistic. And we tend to be short-sighted. And we tend to be biased toward what we want. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 6 that we don't know what's good for us in this life. So we tend to operate with the idea that if we could just get what we think is best to make us happy, that it would be great. And we even tend to pray this way. Now, because we desire what we desire, and because what we desire is not always in line with what the Lord wants for us, it says here in verse 26 that the Spirit intercedes on our behalf because we don't know how to, uh, what to pray. And second, he says, we don't know how to pray as we should. How often do you and I pray with the full faith that we should have in the Savior who's redeemed us? How often do we pray with the fire and the fervency that we should have that God is going to act? How often do we pray with the courage and the deep, unwavering conviction of somebody that is fully, completely dependent on the Lord? Because Paul says here in verse 7, excuse me, Paul says here in verse 26, I don't know how to pray like I should. My mind is not there. I was mowing the lawn yesterday and I was asking the Lord to show me what to say this morning. And, and as I'm mowing, see if you've ever experienced this before, I'm mowing and I start to pray and then my mind gets distracted and I'm thinking about weeds and then I'm looking at the sky and then my mind goes to the 19 things I have to do in the next hour. And then I'm like, oh yeah, Lord, sorry about that. And I was praying just a second ago. Let me get back to that. Now, Lord, I'm really going to need some help for tomorrow. And oh, look, there's a squirrel. And, and you know, I mean, just like, you ever pray like, how many How many know that? Come on, you can admit that, right? Where you're like, I know I should be praying, and I know my heart should be focused. I know I should really be calling on the Lord. I mean, I got an hour here with nothing to do but stare at grass and pray. And yet, I find myself 15 minutes later going, oh, yeah, that's right. Lord, sorry, I was praying, wasn't I? Let me get back to that. And within three minutes, I'm 19 steps down the path. We don't know how to pray. That's not mean or pejorative or, or, or angry of the Lord. He's just saying you're weak people. You don't, you don't know how to pray. And, and when you do, you're not even sure what to say. Your heart is hurting. 
or you're confused or you're trying to make sense and the thoughts aren't coming out right, he's not trying to discourage us from praying and say, well, listen, I'm lousy at it, so I'm not going to do it. He's saying, when you don't know how to pray, I'm going to help you. And it's the same thought as lifting the garage door. I'm going to come along and I'm going to lift up the burden of the fact that you don't know what to pray for or how to pray or what your words to use. But don't lose heart now. Don't stop praying because you're discouraged. Keep at it. Because when you do that, look at the text. I will intercede. I will help you. I will come alongside you. And I will be gracious to you. But here's what I want from you. Look back at verse 25. I want you with eager perseverance to keep praying. The word there means to be loyal and steadfast and unswayed. When you don't know what to pray for, you're hurting, you're struggling, the words aren't coming out, you're, you're just torn apart, you're sad, whatever. The Lord says, just come to me with an eager perseverance that I know what I'm doing and submit yourself to me And the Spirit, as you pray with passion and faith, the Spirit will give you the words. And in fact, they'll be words too deep for you to understand. They'll be like groanings. The Spirit will groan. it'll It'll be too much for us to understand, even if we heard it. In other words, the Lord's not impressed with our eloquence. The Lord's not impressed with our rhetoric. He, he doesn't look at someone, oh, Lord, thank you so much. He, he doesn't care about that. He wants to see our heart. He wants to see that we're humble and that we trust and that we're bold, even if we can't get the words out and we're just, Lord, I don't know what to say. God says, I know your heart. And when you pray like that with self-abandonment, And with confident faith, the Spirit comes along and He says, let me take care of that. Let me intercede because I'm going to align your heart and your requests with the will of God. Remember, we're operating from a point of weakness, but He knows our heart. And He says, when you're broken and you're contrite, and you're dependent on me, oh, that's when I'm going to work, and I'm going to correct it, and I'm going to conform it to myself. Now, with that perspective and that context, and only with that perspective and context, look at verse 28. Because this is a very reassuring verse that we love to quote, But all that comes before it in the chapter reminds us why it's true and it also influences the way that we understand it. Verse 28 is true because of all the great facts that are listed in the chapter right before it. Verse 1, there is no condemnation now for those who are in Christ. Verse 3, Christ condemned our sin and made us alive through him. Verse 11, the spirit is alive in us. Verse 15, we are adopted as children of God. 
Verse 16, we are full heirs of his inheritance. Verse 26, the Spirit helps us and takes the burden off of us. Based on all those facts, they influence our thinking now on what it means to do good for us. But before we define that word in a minute, look at the prerequisites of verse 28. Let's read it again. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who do what? Tell me. Love God. And to those who are what? Called according to his purpose. This verse, this promise, is about people who love the Lord. And the word is the deepest form of love that the language can explain It's the word agape. The word agape means selfless, sacrificial, and unconditional. It's not surface love. It's not passionate love. It's not sensual love. It's not affectionate love for a friend. This encompasses your whole being. It is love from the depths of your heart. It is love that is willing and happy to be sacrificial and to yield. So for the person who has agape love for the Lord, who loves the Lord with the full surrender of their life, like the bondservant that we've talked about in a revelation study, with someone that is fully dependent on the Lord by faith, not just saying words, not just having good intentions, but not following through. For the person that loves the Lord like that, look at the end of the phrase, the Lord causes all things to work together for good. Second prerequisite is that we are called according to his purpose. Now that's listed second because it's dependent on the first. If we don't love him and our lives aren't given to him, then we won't be called by him because we won't care what he wants. But if we really love the Lord, everyone who loves the Lord has a distinct calling both to be his child and his servant and to follow his specific leading for our life. So when we are living by his calling, holy, denying self, set apart from the world, serving him, being witness of his gospel, then of course the Lord will be working in our lives to bring us joy and contentment, which will be natural because our will will be aligned with his. If you love the Lord, agape, all of yourself, everything, full encompassing of your life, this is who you are. You can't be separated from your relationship with the Lord. If you love the Lord, then you are called according to his purpose. And when you love the Lord and are called according to his purpose, then God says all things that happen to you will work together for good. Now that makes sense, but maybe our heart and mind are convinced. We want to believe that all things work together for good, but how can we be sure? Well, Paul gives us two assurances that clarify the truth. He says at the start of the verse that we know this. For we know that all things work together for good. That's an awesome word that has a lot of meaning to it in the original language. It means to see it as true through perception, experience, and careful inspection. We know, we see it now, that through our experience, 
through our perception and through inspecting it, looking at it in our lives, that this is true. It's not just a hope or something that we wish would be true. It's been proven again and again in our lives. The Lord has verified it. He's shown us by what he's done through countless times of being faithful and countless times of providing, and it holds up to close inspection, both as we study his word and as we look at what he's done in our midst. How many know that's true this morning? How many know that God has been faithful every step of the way? And here's Paul writing it. And Paul experienced more rejection, more abuse, more opposition, more criticism, more hatred, more abandonment, even by his close friends, than anybody else could possibly imagine. If there's anybody that could have questioned all things working together for good, it was Paul. If there's anybody that could have said, look, I've served the Lord. I gave my life to the Lord. I've surrendered everything about my past. I've walked away from all my friends, all my comfort, all my intelligence, all my credibility, and now I'm preaching to the Gentiles of all people. And, and in doing that, I'm completely abandoned. I'm criticized. I've been stoned. I've been kicked out of towns. The apostles wouldn't even listen to me at first or believe that I had a calling. And I've been abused and ridiculed and abandoned. And nobody stands for me. How is this working together for my good? And yet when he's in jail at the end of his life in Philippians chapter 1, Listen to what he writes. These things have happened to me, brothers, for the greater progress of the gospel. And he goes on to say, my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole guard and to everybody else. And most of the brethren, trusting because of my imprisonment, have far more courage now to speak the word of God without fear I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel and Christ is being proclaimed and for this I rejoice. Talk about a spiritual perspective. If we went through a tenth of what Paul went through, we would be on our face crying. And yet at the end of his life, when nobody will visit him and he's writing to Timothy saying, please, Timothy, Come see me. Bring my coat. Bring me something to read. Everybody abandoned me. Paul says, oh, all that abuse, all that opposition, all that ridicule, the stonings, the beatings, everything that happened, it's great. Because it's happened, the gospel's gone further. The whole guard in the praetorium knows the gospel because I won't shut up. And everybody in the city knows about me. And you know what? All the pastors and all the evangelists and all the apostles that have been struggling and fearful, now they have an extra fervency because they see in me the perspective that all things work together for good. Listen, if Paul can come to that conclusion, then how much more should you and I Because we have far less difficulties and far less demands and we're blessed so richly. But let's finish with this. How we perceive that is based on how we understand that one other word in verse 28. 
It's the word good. All things work together for good. What does that word mean? How do we define it? By what's best in our sight? By what makes us happy for the time being? By what makes people notice us? By what advances us socially or economically or in our business? But by what gives us more power? By, by what makes us smile? Or do we define good as what will refine us? What will make us more holy? What will diminish self and cause people to see Christ because we're conformed to his will? Do we define good by what will take us to a new level of faith? By what will make us more dependent, even though it's hard on us in the short term? By what will draw us closer to Christ? See, see, there are two very different perspectives, aren't they? All things work together for good. All right, Lord, we'll bring some good into my life. And God says, how you define good is not how I define good. You tend to define good, human being, as by what just brings you temporary gladness. But that temporary gladness will fade away. I define good as what makes you more like me. And what brings you more in line with my purpose. Because he knows what will benefit us personally. He knows what will benefit us spiritually. And he says, that is what I want to produce in your life. And if that means hardship for a short term, in other words, to bring you joy later, I'll do it. If that means you're going to be confused for a while because you're going to seek my face and beg me to show you my will and I'm going to see that fervency and that passion in your faith that I've been waiting so long to see because you've been stagnant, well then so be it. I'm going to confuse you right now because I want you to seek my face. And when you do that, go back to verse 26, my spirit will help you. And I will lift the burden off of you and I will change your thinking and he will align you with my will and that will be good. All things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. Church, that's what we're striving for. That's what we need in our lives. Let's close our eyes. When we started this study this morning, I said that if you're struggling to know what the Lord's doing or you feel discouraged or defeated by someone or something in your life, that I believe this text is for you and I hope you have been encouraged this morning. And I hope your heart and mind has been awakened to what God wants to do in your life, that you've been reminded of His faithful love and his faithful provision. And I want to tell you this morning, if you feel weak and confused, know that he is helping you. Know that he is lifting that burden off of you. And he wants to show you what is good. Father, we pray this morning that
that you would help us. Lord, you have so many times. You take the burdens off of us. You restore our soul when we're struggling. You encourage us through your word and your spirit and through the church. You have never failed us and you've never forsaken us. You've never even taken your eyes off of us. Even when we were far away from you, you never turned aside. Lord, I pray this morning that your spirit would move through this room and that you would encourage us. For those that are discouraged and downtrodden and struggling and confused, Lord, right now we pray that you would encourage them and strengthen them and that their hearts would be drawn completely toward you. Father, we don't know how to pray. We don't know what to pray. Our priorities are all messed up. We do pray this morning that you would align us with your will and that you would teach us what is good. Not what we define it, but what you define it. That we would walk with you, that we would be faithful. And Lord, that we would experience your grace and your mercy every single day in ways we just can't possibly fathom. Lord, strengthen us for the battle. We pray as we head into summer, Lord, that we would not let our guard down, that we'd not become complacent, but that you'd give us a new fire and a new fervency for you. Lord, this city and this area needs Jesus Christ. And it is up to us as your children and as your witnesses and your ambassadors to reach them. But Lord, that starts with us walking faithfully with you. So fill us with that fire, we pray. Give us an urgency because the days are short. We thank you, Lord, and we praise you for what you have done and what you are about to do. Father, push the enemy away from us so we would not be discouraged and distracted. Keep us close to you, we pray. And we'll praise you as you work in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.